From Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International, Science and the Search for Meaning, Five Questions, a special series from To the Best of Our Knowledge and Tim Fleming. This hour, Does the Soul Still Matter? I think we can explain all of the things that we used to need the soul for by things like brain science. That's the prevailing view of many scientists and skeptics. They say the soul is a metaphysical idea whose time has most definitely passed. But has it? My fear is that if we don't include this in our conception of what it means to be human, then people end up being machines, objects to be manipulated, something unfortunate happens. So, does the soul still mean something in today's world? Today we'll talk with neuroscientists, philosophers, theologians, and Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Marilyn Robinson. I suspect that a science that described the soul would be called poetry. Soul? Come on, Newhouse, there is no such thing as a soul. It's just something they made up to scare kids, like the Boogeyman or Michael Jackson. But every religion says there's a soul, Bart. Why would they lie? Well, if your soul is real, where is it? It's kind of in here. And when you sneeze, that's your soul trying to escape. Saying God bless you crams it back in. And when you die, it squirms out and flies away. How can someone with glasses that thick be so stupid? Listen, you don't have a soul. I don't have a soul. There's no such thing as a soul. Bart Simpson may have his doubts about the soul, but Keith Ward doesn't. He's a prominent theologian and philosopher at Oxford University and the University of London. His many books include In Defense of the Soul. Steve Paulson talked with Keith Ward. We now live in an age of science where many old religious concepts seem hopelessly outdated. Does the idea of the soul still matter in today's world? Well, I think it matters. Not many people use the word anymore, certainly not in science. But then the word for soul in the New Testament is psyche, which is a Greek word, which means mind. So really what we talk about as the mind is what medieval people used to talk about as the soul. So the mind-body problem is still very much alive. It's, it's a hot topic of debate. So if you say soul equals mind, really, that gives you the best idea of it. Now, in your book, In Defense of the Soul, you wrote... What is at stake is our whole view of what it means to be human, whether we can really continue to believe in human dignity and value, whether all traditional moral values must not collapse in the cold, clear light of scientific truth. This is quite a burden to place on this old idea of the soul, isn't it? It is. Quite a purple passage, too, looking back at it. (laughs) What I had in mind there is that quite an influential body of people now are saying that uh, human beings are just material, they're just uh, results of, you know, atoms bouncing around in the brain, and so there's no objective value, there's no purpose, it's just an accident, it's a result of millions of evolutionary accidents, and there's no point to it at all. Now, okay, if, if science has to say that, you know, if that was a definite conclusion of science, you'd have to put up with it and live with it somehow, but it's not, as a matter of fact, there's a lot more to the question than that, and the question is really, is there more to the mind? than just what's in the brain. You know, Francis Crick, one of the people who discovered the structure of DNA and got the Nobel Prize, he wrote a book called The Incredible Hypothesis in which he said, you and your feelings and your thoughts and your emotions and your values, you are nothing but the movement of neurons in your brain. And you obviously disagree with Francis Crick. On what basis? Well, I think most people have disagreed with them throughout history, really. And if you look at all the great philosophers who've written in all the traditions, East and West, they've mostly said that mind, consciousness, awareness, thought and experience is the basic bedrock of reality. And what people like Crick have said is, no, you start with lumps of matter and you see what they do. But it's very difficult. It's a very minority view. And the reason for not holding it is that, well, when we think, when we feel, when we perceive, when we know our own experience, we know something that uh, doesn't seem to be explainable in terms of physics or chemistry. It's something quite different. It's personal experience and that personal experience that nobody else has access to. It's not in space. You know, you can't see my thoughts in space, but I know that they exist. Those things just don't seem to be material. From a religious perspective, is the soul important mainly to account for life after death? No, 
No, it's not, because, you know, the Old Testament didn't really believe in life after death until very late in the Old Testament. There was a gloomy sort of place called Sheol. The Romans called it Hades, but it wasn't a happy place and it was nothing to look forward to. So life after death was never a, a major factor in thinking about the soul. The major factor was, I think, this. Have humans got a special moral responsibility for what they do in life? Can you hold them accountable? Are they responsible? Are their lives unique? Do you value them for that? Not for what they're going to be after death, but for what they are now. And that's what the Bible is concerned with. Now, it seems that that we should bring in the question of evolution here, and particularly the evolution of the brain, because it, it would seem to be highly relevant to this discussion. And, and I want to refer back to that famous announcement by Pope John Paul II in 1996, when he said, finally, that evolution is compatible with Christian faith. He said evolution explains the development of life on Earth with one major exception, the human soul, which he said was created by God. Does that explanation make sense to you? No, I think most Catholic theologians would doubt whether that made very much sense. I should make it quite clear that was not an infallible statement of any sort. (laughs) That was his opinion. And, you know, theologians usually differ with the Pope on lots of things when he's just writing stuff. And I don't think he should have made an exception for the soul. There are lots of crucial stages of evolution. The beginning of life is one. The formation of the brain is another. The onset of consciousness is another. And then a later one than that is intelligence and a sense of continuing self-identity, which you might now call the soul, I suppose. Okay, well, let's just play this out for a moment. If the mind is essentially the same as the soul in your definition, and the brain evolved historically at a particular point, what does that say about the state of the mind before evolution reached this more recent stage? I mean, 100 million years ago, can we talk about the mind? Can we talk about consciousness back then? Well, we don't know, to be honest, because we don't even know today whether ants, for example, are conscious. I mean, are beetles conscious? Are frogs conscious? We don't know. I think it's possible. And if you want the crunch question, who gets life after death, right? I think it would only make sense for something to have life after death if it had a sense of personal continuance. I mean, if it knew it was the same thing that used to be a frog, right? If you had a frog which said, oh, yeah, I'm the same frog that used to live in that pond, then I think that frog would be entitled to eternal life. Okay, so I'm all in favor of heaven for animals. Let's get them in there. But only animals which know that they are the animals they used to be. Probably that's the higher primates. And in England, it would include dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I think in the United States, it would include dogs as well. Okay, got it. (laughs) What about computers, though? Yeah, possibly computers. I mean, not the one I have, but some computers. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I I think everyone agrees that computers can't think right now. I mean, they can compute extremely well. They can calculate, but they can't think like human beings. But the jury is out whether they will at some point in the future, which I guess raises the specter of whether computers in the future might have souls. Yeah. My answer to that will be a very definite yes. I mean, I'm not saying they will. I'm I'm just saying it's possible. And if you constructed something which uh, had a sense of moral responsibility and of guilt and all that, you'd have to give it the rights. You couldn't say human rights. You'd have to talk about personal rights. And then you'd have to say, yes, you could have an artificial person. You probably wouldn't even call it a computer then. And the test, the crucial test would be, do they have, do you believe they have a sense of moral freedom and responsibility? Because that's the crucial test of a human being. And that's when we might say, if you want to use that language, uh, oh, these beings now have a soul. That's Keith Ward a theologian and philosopher at Oxford University and the University of London. His books include In Defense of the Soul and The Big Questions in Science and Religion. You know, Bart, some philosophers believe that nobody is born with a soul, that you have to earn one through suffering and thought and prayer, like you did last night. Uh Uh-huh. So has the soul escaped the explanatory power of science? Not at all. At least that's the view of Princeton University neuroscientist Michael Graziano, author of the book God, Soul, Mind, Brain. He says our evolution as socially intelligent animals has shaped our religious beliefs. Graziano told Steve Paulson that our ideas about spirits and the soul can be explained entirely by new insights from brain science. 
what is consciousness but our perception of a mind in ourselves? What is the spirit world, ghosts, angels, or deities, but the perception of minds that we attribute to specific locations around us? So the entire range of phenomena in the spirit world is essentially the perception of mind, which depends on these specific brain mechanisms that evolved to make us socially intelligent. So you're saying someone's encounter with a spirit, neurologically speaking, is basically the same as someone experiencing God. They're based on the same mechanism. That's right. So just to ground this a little bit, probably all of us have had the experience. You're sitting by yourself at night in a house and your imagination goes a little a little off and you start thinking maybe there's somebody in the house. I kind of almost sense, it's almost like a palpable sensation of another mind. That I'm suggesting that is essentially your social machinery constructing this perception. So what is your understanding of the soul? Well, there are very specific perspectives on the soul. I think there's a set of intuitions that are ubiquitous across all cultures and perhaps across most people that we have something in us that's non-physical, a mind, an intention, some kind of awareness, and this property can survive beyond the death of the body. And that really kind of encapsulates the concept of soul. And what I'm saying is actually this is something that can be approached scientifically. It can be understood scientifically in that what we're looking at is a, a type of perception, specifically a social perception. And these seemingly ethereal properties are constructs, perceptual constructs of the brain. Well, it sounds like you're also saying that to some degree, the way our brains are wired, going back to our evolutionary history, it's almost inevitable that we are going to have religious impulses. We're going to look for explanations for things that don't seem to have any explanations. And so that's where our, our belief in spirits and, and God comes from. I think that's right. In other words, we evolved in a social environment, and therefore we have an ability to reconstruct the intentions behind events. And therefore, when we see events that otherwise are inexplicable, we tend to resort to that type of thinking and invent intentions and some kind of agency to explain those events. I think it's in us to do that. Michael Graziano is a neuroscientist at Princeton. He talked with Steve Paulson about his book, God, Soul, Mind, Brain. So what do philosophers think about the soul these days? And Strange Champs asked one, Columbia College philosopher Stephen Asma. Most of my colleagues and I are resistant to talk about the soul. We were kind of loath to bring it up in class. It's become, I think, sort of outdated. It's not a topic that comes up a lot in philosophy courses. And what about your students? Do they still care about the soul? Oh, yeah. It's a big topic for them. There's a whole range of options. There's the sort of classic monotheistic notions of soul and afterlife are very much intact if the students are religious. But also, there's a lot more animism and sort of new age notions of the soul as energy. Then there's sort of hardcore atheists. That position has become more respectable in the last decade, I would say. So they're, they're quite vocal. What I try to sort of do is give them a different angle here. I try to say, well, how is it that we actually use this term, soul? How do we use it on a day-to-day -day basis? That shifts the discussion from, well, can we prove the existence of this thing, to looking at, well, we apply it sometimes to music, we apply it to food, we apply it to, you know, a nature hike, this hike was good for my soul. And if you start to look at how we use the language of soul, it turns out it's a very useful and productive language still in our culture, even though we don't have some of the naive metaphysical views about the soul that we used to have. I take it you don't yourself believe that we have a soul? No, I don't. Why not? <laughs> I'm basically um, a scientific sort of thinker and uh, I think and, and a bit of a skeptic and I suspect that the traditional soul, the metaphysical soul, there doesn't seem to be any evidence for it and I think we can explain all of the things that we used to need the soul for by things like brain science. Given the kind of baggage the word soul or the concept soul carries by now, do you think we should just replace it with some other word? 
I hope not. I mean, there are sometimes philosophers who suggest this, that, you know, we should get rid of folk language and just talk in a kind of scientific manner about, about everything. This just strikes me as a depressing option. And, you know, I think soul really does describe something. You know, when I say James Brown has soul, you get it. If I start to describe, well, what I mean by that is he has certain aspects of the African-American experience in his music. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and then I, I'm describing, well, it's funky and the body moves in a certain way. That's just awful. Just say he's got soul. You get it. Stephen Asma talked with Anstrin Chance. He's a philosopher at Columbia College in Chicago. Coming up, a theologian offers a radical critique of Christianity. She says it's time to forget about the soul. If Christians had not thought all of these centuries that there was such a thing as souls to save, they would have had to find something different to do. For instance, taking some of Jesus' teachings about living in this world more seriously. For to the best of our knowledge, I'm Jim Fleming. This hour, Does the Soul Still Matter? It's part of our special series, Science and the Search for Meaning, Five Questions. Brought to you by Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International. Our series, Science and the Search for Meaning, Five Questions, is supported by grants from the John Templeton Foundation, supporting science, investing in the big questions. By Promega Corporation, providing tools and technologies for research in life science. And by the Noor Foundation, exploring meaning and commonality of human experience. Hi, my name is Elma Baker. I wrote the book, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance, which is a memoir. And today I'm going to be reading just a short section from that book. First off, I uh, grew up Mormon, and I lived in New York City for 10 years as a practicing Mormon. As a Mormon, living in the city trying to date, I had very short relationships. In fact, uh, the longest relationship I was able to sustain because I didn't believe in having sex before marriage was uh, four weeks. Uh, and that's only because uh, for two of those weeks, uh, the guy was out of town. So I didn't date very much until at the age of 23, I fell in love for the first time uh, with an atheist. So this is a section from the book that sort of takes place in towards the end of the relationship as we're trying to make things work in spite of our differences. We went to the new Star Wars movie the following Tuesday. I was determined to ignore everything we'd been arguing about and just go back to the beginning. We will not discuss religion. We will not discuss sex. We will only have fun, I decided. It seemed like it was working, too. I wore a cute outfit and matching heels, and for a minute I felt like the girl again. The girl on the date. Until our walk to the subway. What do you think about cloning? Matt asked. I don't think about it, I said, unless I happen to see a movie about it, but in general, it doesn't come up. But doesn't it make you question your faith? Why? They haven't figured out how to do it yet. They've cloned sheep. So? It's a sheep, it's not a human. Yes, but they're very close to successfully cloning humans, he said. That's impossible. They can clone a sheep and it can move its eyes and walk and act alive. But they will never be able to successfully clone a human being. Why not? Scientists can't create that thing that makes us alive, I said earnestly. They can't create a person's soul. I don't believe in souls. What? I stopped in the middle of the sidewalk, breaking the flow. Several annoyed pedestrians bumped into me. What? I repeated. You don't believe people have souls? No. How is that even possible? I thought everyone, regardless of religion, believed in souls. I don't. He shrugged like it was no big deal. 
So what makes you you? I asked. All the things that have happened to me, he answered. But when you die, what'll leave your body? Nothing. Um, my heart will just stop beating. Are you being serious? I said, reevaluating everything I come to believe that Matt believed. It was too much. If I tried really, really hard, I could accept the notion that there wasn't a God and that maybe, just maybe, we'd ended up on Earth by chance. I could even accept that death was it, the end. But I couldn't possibly believe that there was nothing inside of me. Yes, he answered. I put my hand on Matt's shoulders and held him in place. People were still pushing by us, glaring or grunting passively aggressively, because we were both blocking the sidewalk. But I didn't care. I held on to him until it felt like there was no one left on the street but us. I stared deeply into his eyes without speaking. I looked into the hazel. I looked past the yellow specks. And I searched until I found the him inside of him. What are you doing? He finally said. I am looking at your soul. Matt, I can see it. I know that it is there. It speaks to me. He tried not to laugh. And what does it say? Screw you, I shouted. Only the expletive version of that. If Matt looked surprised, it was nothing compared to my face. It's not a word I use that often, but when making a religious point, it was the only thing that came to mind. Screw you, I repeated, still channeling his soul. I've been living inside of you for 29 years, and you've been ignoring me the entire time. My soul sounds kind of angry, Matt laughed. Tell me about it, I sighed. I think it just it feels neglected. We reached the subway station and said goodnight. Matt was halfway down the steps when he stopped and looked back up at me. Uh, just so you know, he shouted, they're very close to cloning a human being. If they clone a human being, I shouted back, a fully functional, emoting, thinking human, I will have sex with you that very day. Several people stopped what they were doing and stared at me. One woman covered her son's ears. Matt jogged back up the steps. Deal, he said. Deal. We shook on it. I'm going to read popular science every morning now, he said, walking back down the steps. I am too, I called after him. For my own sake, I wanted it to be possible. I wanted scientists to clone a person and announce it on the morning news, not for genetics or scientific progress, but because if a soul was something that could be obtained in a Petri dish, it would nullify my definition of God, and I could sleep with Matt guilt-free. Elna Baker is the author of the memoir, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. She lives in New York City. So does the soul still matter in the age of science? Absolutely, says Parker Palmer, though he thinks the word itself often trips us up. Palmer is a writer and educator and the author of a number of books, including Teaching with Heart and Soul. Experientially, there are things in my life that can only be understood through the metaphorical window of this word soul. Different people name this in a thousand different ways. You know, the Hasidic Jews talk about the spark of the divine in every human being. Quakers talk about the inner light or the inner teacher. Thomas Merton called it true self. Secular humanists, I think, call it identity and integrity. Buddhists call it big self or no self. But it seems to me that what you name it doesn't matter, but that you name it matters considerably because my fear is that if we don't include this element or something like it in our conception of the person, of what it means to be human, then people end up being machines, objects to be manipulated. Something unfortunate happens in history when we don't have an appreciation of 
the essential quality of, of humanness, whatever you want to call it. Listening to you talk about this, it is very clear that this word has a personal resonance mm -hmm. for you in your life. It does. Discovery of soul has mattered. Yeah, it has. And I can tell probably the seminal story of what that discovery was like. I have three times in my adult life suffered from clinical depression. And what's struck me about those three long journeys in the darkness is that all of the faculties one normally depends on, or I normally depend on, fall away. The intellect, for example, which in my case I depend on a lot, is useless in depression. Depression is not something you can think your way out of or think your way through. In fact, overthinking probably tends to drive people deeper into depression. The emotions, another faculty that we depend upon, are gone when you're in depression. Depression is not a feeling of sadness. It's the terrifying knowledge that you can't feel anything at all. The ego doesn't help. Another faculty that we need, I think, to get, I'm not an anti-ego guy. If you're going to do heavy lifting and, and hard work and sometimes even find it in yourself to be courageous, you need an ego. You need a strong sense of self. In depression, the ego is shattered. Your sense of identity is gone. And the will the fourth function I would name, is barely, barely functional. So in that darkness, every now and then, I would glimpse what I came to think of as the wild animal way back in the thickets in the woods, that kind of wild, primitive, original source that was somehow calling me to live rather than die, which is an existential question when you're in that place. And I came to think of this as the soul, and I did, in fact, come to think of it metaphorically as a wild animal in two senses. One is that a wild animal is very tough, very resourceful, very resilient. It knows how to survive in places where there's very little food. And at the same time, it's very, very shy. In fact, I don't think the soul even likes to be talked about much. So I, <laughs> I talk with you about this at some risk. You don't get at the soul by shouting at it from a pulpit. Part of what's interesting about it, though, to me is that if you have a general discussion with a religious person about the soul, it is likely to be a much warmer and fuzzier contemplation that you assign the word soul to the essence that you're talking about. There may be something warm and fuzzy about it, but I don't think that's what it is. No, I, for me, I don't see it as warm and fuzzy at all. <laughs> One of the things that I think you would find in common among many people who've been depressed and have lived to tell the tale is that they will say, having been there and survived it, what could ever scare me again? What could I ever find daunting again? And I think that kind of affirmation has an awful lot to do with discovering the soul and discovering this place in yourself that can be accessed only through deep quietude. You see, this is another reason why I think we don't know much about the soul. We live in a society that is noisy, is filled with energetic ego, and active intellect, all things that I like. But when you live in a culture that resists solitude and silence, that resists introspection, you're very unlikely to ever get a glimpse of that wild animal. It would be like walking into a forest and shouting for the fox to come out. <laughs> and you know that under those circumstances, that's when the fox is least likely to put in an appearance. What does this mean, do you think, in the way you look at the uh, the contemplation of the soul and the way science does? You've talked – you clearly don't have anything against the scientific pursuit of understanding who and what we are. Science fascinates me, and I want to know everything that scientists know about the way the world works, whether that's the interior world of the human self or the cosmos. And in fact, I see an enormous overlap between – the doing of science and engaging in contemplation. I don't know of a great scientist who hasn't said something about 
a contemplative dimension to his or her work. For a lot of people, the assumption is easy that science can explain everything these days. It appears that you're saying there are still things that scientists recognize as beyond scientific method. You're absolutely right. And I would say that any scientist who says our methodology covers everything is a fundamentalist, just as are people who claim that their particular version of holy writ explains everything. I think one important thing to be said here is that while science, with its commitment to what they call objectivity, has certainly advanced civilization by saving us from the subjective whims of princes and potentates and people of power, who, for example, would declare millions of women over the course of history to be witches. It's also true that the rise of science has, to make a big leap here, but which I believe I can explain, has also supported the rise of authoritarian regimes because it makes people dependent on experts. And it's not a big leap from saying, oh, science is the new religion. There are experts who know things that I don't. And so if scientific claims then get made to mask the manipulations of power, people are going to fall into line with that if they don't trust or have a well-developed sense of legitimate subjectivity. You don't have to look far for that. Look at what happened to our economy over the last decade. <laughs> we listened to long lines of experts telling us how every day in every way we were getting richer and richer. And they weren't right. Parker Palmer is an author and educator and founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal. So is the essence, essence from the thing. Up next, a Christian theologian who says we should forget about the soul. For to the best of our knowledge, I'm Jim Fleming. This hour, Does the Soul Still Matter? is part of our special series, Science and the Search for Meaning. Five questions. Brought to you by Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International. Our series, Science and the Search for Meaning, Five Questions, is supported by grants from the John Templeton Foundation, supporting science, investing in the big questions. By Promega Corporation, providing tools and technologies for research in life science. And by the Noor Foundation, exploring meaning and commonality of human experience. So what is the soul? We asked a few people on the streets outside our studio. The soul is our interdimensional connection to each other and everything else living. I think that the soul is really the core being of who someone is. Maybe, you know, from a sort of a Judeo-Christian tradition, it would be like the mind, the will, the emotions, you know, who you are, what you think, what you want, what you do. I don't think I believe in a soul. What people think of as the soul is probably just maybe your interior self. The soul's part of your body. It's all the same thing. The question of what the soul is is one that just cannot be answered by somebody like me. It would take a whole lifetime of contemplation just to get a glimpse at that answer. What is the soul? I think the soul is love and... Yeah, love. <laughs> I guess as a Unitarian, I would say that there's this undercurrent of life essence, whatever that means, that goes from person to person and animals and everything in between, and that all connecting. The soul is the real part of us. We're this, this spiritual being that's really having 
a physical experience as opposed to physical beings having a spiritual experience. And so the soul is the, uh, the immaterial, the unseen part of us, where our, our passions and our heart and our desires come together to really shape and define who we are. It's the true essence of the human being. A special thanks to Brittany DeAnda for producing that Vox Pop. Nancy Murphy is a professor of Christian philosophy at Fuller Theological Seminary. She's also immersed in the scientific literature on neuroscience and biology. It made Steve Paulson wonder just what a modern theologian, at least Nancy Murphy, thinks about all this soul talk. For centuries, the soul has been one of the core ideas of certain religious traditions, and it would seem to be very remote from the empirical world of science. Do you think science has anything useful to say about the soul? Yes, that there isn't one. (laughs) (laughs) End of discussion. (laughs) Well, intended to be a provocative beginning of discussion because the issues are much more subtle than that. The thesis that I put forward is that the idea of a soul comes not from Hebrew or Christian revelation, but actually has origins in a number of other religions, but primarily in Greek philosophy. Plato, one of the primary sources, believed that the soul is not only immortal, but that it's eternal, that is, it pre-exists the body. Okay, well, let's, let's bring this story a little closer to our own time and bring in science then, because it would seem that Darwin, in particular, posed some challenges. I mean, of course, the revolutionary idea of Darwin is that there is this gradual continuum from animals to humans and that you can't just draw a sharp dividing line and and say, okay, at this moment, humanity started. That's right. Which raises some pretty profound questions about the soul. That's right. And it's gotten more and more complicated as the years have gone by because we've found that we are not simply descendants of apes, but we're descendants of a long branching history of hominids. And to ask where in that those thousands, millions of years of continuous development, you would decide, okay, the humans begin here. And so if God's going to start inserting souls, God has to start with this particular branch of the tree at this particular point in history. You are a Christian yourself. In fact, you are an ordained minister. What what do you make of this history of souls? Well, the interesting thing is long before people got worried about the consequences of either neuroscience or evolutionary biology, biblical scholars had already raised the question of whether body-soul dualism actually shows up in the scriptures or not. And there's an almost complete consensus that the Hebrew scriptures, what we Christians call the Old Testament, does not teach body-soul dualism. The word that has been translated most often as soul in the older versions, such as the King James Version, the Hebrew word in most cases is nephesh. And that's a word that can take on multiple meanings, all the way from being used to designate the throat By association, it designates the breath that flows through the throat. And then when people die, they expire, they breathe their last. And so nephesh is associated with being a living being. So it sounds like you want to get away from this this dualism. Absolutely. That that especially came down from Descartes. That, That just doesn't make sense. And also what came down from Plato. I think that was an intrusion into Christian theology the whole of Western Christianity would have been better off had that not happened. And the reason I say that is, to put it rather bluntly, if Christians had not thought all of these centuries that there was such a thing as souls to save, they would have had to find something different to do. And maybe what they would have found themselves doing is, for instance, taking some of Jesus' teachings about living in this world more seriously. This is quite a a radical critique here, isn't it? Yes, it is. Of of traditional Christianity. Yes, it is. You're really suggesting that uh, the history of not only of Christianity, but the history of the West could have been very different without this dualistic split between body and soul. Absolutely. And we're still seeing extremely negative effects of body-soul dualism in contemporary politics. If you believe that the end is going to be a matter of gathering souls off to heaven— as opposed to the kingdom of God being fully established on earth, 
you're going to have much less concern with politics, with feeding the poor, with peace, with the environment. So what about the soul itself, that word? Does, does that word have resonance for you? I mean, more than as a historian, but as a, as a believer yourself? I mean, is, is this a concept that we should hang on to? No, it's not. But you must think that there's more to us than just the brain, I'm presuming. Well, I call myself a non-reductive physicalist. And the physicalist signals that in terms of what stuff we're made of, we're made of of no different stuff than anything else in the physical world. But the non-reductive part signals that we're not just rocks, we're not just animals, we're not even just smart animals. We are fancy deluxe animals. We've got the capacity for morality. We've got the capacity for much more subtle emotional responses. We've got the capacity for higher-level reasoning, including symbolic reasoning. And most important, we've got the capacity to understand what the concept God means, and we've got the capacity to relate to God. So all of that, with perhaps the exception of the last thing you were talking about, our capacity to relate to God, is, is very consistent with, with modern science, with, That's right. with neuroscience. There is this very concerted effort among scientists to try to figure out which parts of the brain seem to govern religious experience. Does that have any bearing on what we're talking about? Well, if you're a physicalist, then it goes without saying that any experience that a human being has is going along with something going on in the brain. And if you thought that religious experience was just one sharply restricted type of experience, for instance, mystical awareness, then it would make sense to think that there might be some particular brain region or regions that are responsible for that and solely responsible for that. But I have a much broader concept of religious experience. I'm not a mystic, and so I'm much more interested in what you might call more ordinary types of religious experiences. And so I think, for instance, that when I'm in church on Sunday and we sing a hymn about God's concern for the poor and I get choked up over that and my eyes tear up, I think that's a good old down-home instance of a religious experience. And there's no specifically localizable brain region that's doing that. I mean, it's happening in my eyes and it's happening in my chest and my throat. When I feel those emotions, it's much more a whole body experience. So one last question, life after death. You've banished the soul from Mm -hmm. uh, our vocabulary. How should we talk about the being that presumably exists in Christian thinking after the physical body dies. What, what, what is that that is still existing? There are two ways to go. Either you can say simply that we are dead until the general resurrection when we'll be raised up together. And that's not, by the way, a resuscitated corpse, but rather it's a body composed of some sort of transformed or recreated stuff What that doesn't answer is, what about between when I die and the end of the world, whenever that's going to be? So one way to go is to say that I'm just plain dead, like an animal would be. But another way to go is to say that we can't put resurrection on an earthly timeline, because after all, time is a part of the creation of the physical world. And if we are resurrected to be with God, then we are somehow transcending the physical world, and it's not clear that earthly timelines apply. So one way of putting it, and I always stress that this is putting it in almost nonsense language, maybe each of us is resurrected elsewhere, else when, at the moment of our deaths, and so there isn't any time lag between my death and my resurrection. Nancy Murphy talking with Steve Paulson. Murphy teaches Christian philosophy at Fuller Theological Seminary. So does the soul still matter? We've talked with scientists, philosophers, and theologians. But we wanted to give the last word to a novelist, specifically to Marilyn Robinson, the celebrated author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Gilead and the Orange Prize-winning book 
home. Robinson's novels are famous for their serious treatment of religious ideas, and she's just written a book of essays that spells out her thoughts about what modern science says about the mind. It's called Absence of Mind. And Strange Champs talked with Marilyn Robinson about the soul in the age of modern science. At an earlier period in American history, it was much more commonplace for people to concern themselves with grappling about the nature of the soul or, or thoughts about the welfare of their soul. And today, well, we have other words and, and other languages that we apply to our interior lives. Do you think we've lost something? Does the soul still matter? I myself incline very much toward the idea that the word soul does indeed describe something very essential. It describes the sort of primary experience of oneself that any human being has in the course of life. You know, the love that you have for the fact of being, the capacity for disappointment in oneself <laughs> that one has. What is the soul, do you think? I mean, it, it, is it the same thing as the mind? I have no idea. I've read a fair amount of, you know, the sorts of things that... Um, undertake to describe the mind or the brain or consciousness, whatever. And um, no one knows what any of that is or what is the best way to describe it. So my only basis for opinion is my own experience. Is this awareness of your soul, is that something you've had all your life from as far back as you can remember, or is it a sort of learned concept? Certainly, I, in some sense, I have had that experience Back into my deepest memory, perhaps the most striking early memories that I have were exactly the feeling of, you know, the more than self. I mean, a lot of the sharpest memories I have of my childhood were being on a porch at night and hearing the wind blow in the forests around the, my grandfather's house and just feeling this overwhelming sense of the density of, you know, existence in some way. I mean, that ponderous language to impose on a childhood memory, but nevertheless, just moments like that where nothing happened. More recently, you've written a book of essays about the mind, which in some ways would seem to be kind of a departure from the novels that you've written that deal a great deal with religious subjects. And yet, do you think, well, do you see a connection between the religious subjects you've explored in your fiction and the ideas that you grapple with in absence of mind? Well, you know, the absolute center of my religious loyalty, feeling, whatever you want to call it, is the sacredness of human beings. And I am very disturbed by a kind of, of, of minimization of the elegance and richness of human existence that seems to be so, so pervasive. How do you see that playing out? Do you mean because our science tends to teach us, tends to be very materialistic, teach us that, um, you know, all we are is meat? Some science, and I would put that in quotation marks, is very materialistic, and it tends to assume the kind of materialism that would have been assumed in about, in the 18th century. If you read you know, modern physics, modern cosmologies, the whole idea of a, a simple, comprehensible physical world simply evaporates. The physical world is, reads like Byzantine theology or something, you know, if, if you read about it from the point of view of the subatomic world and so on, you know, or, or speculations about the structure of the universe or the nature of it. Well, it sounds as though you have found a way to bring a scientific perspective of the world and your religious faith together. It seems to me that the longer I think about theology, the more it opens to me and the, the more I read to the extent that I can in scientific publications and so on, the more that opens to me. I feel that the genius of both of them is to be open. Can you think of moments when the two have come together? Have you read something scientific and felt that you were reading theology? <laughs> well, you know, I, I love to read about the new cosmologies, and I know that they are, you know, string theory and M-theory and all these things. I know they're speculative. I know that they are at least uh, untestable for the moment, perhaps forever. I love 
reading about multiverses and all the rest of it, simply because all of these things, by virtue of being respectable hypotheses, open a sense of the magnificent complexity of reality. It's like reading good theology. I, I get my Scientific American, <laughs> and I go straight to the new cosmologies. What do you love especially? I mean, I, I guess what I wish is that I could hear the great Marilyn Robinson, one of our most brilliant writers, tell me what's beautiful about string theory. <laughs> well, you know, the idea that there are any number of potential dimensions. I mean, I think I've seen seven. I think I've seen 11, you know, the speculations on how many unexpressed dimensions of reality exist in, you know, whatever that means. And the idea of this sort of unimaginable other potential that somehow is implicit in given reality is just very beautiful to my mind. And I, you know, whether it's true or not, I enjoy, I enjoy the thought. So going back to the concept of the soul, you know, we began talking about some of your own intuitions about what it is, this this deeply internal felt experience of the larger, deeper self. Can you imagine a science that might get at some of that? I suspect that a science that described the soul would be called poetry, I mean, one of the things that we do as human beings is ornament existence lavishly with music and poetry and everything, you know. And what we're doing really is inscribing our humanity on the planet where we happen (laughs) to find ourselves, this odd little planet. And I think that the idea that there's an opposition between the expression of these intuitions in the form that they've classically taken and science, the fact that these worlds don't talk to each other, trivializes art and it trivializes science, I think. Marilyn Robinson talked with Anne Strangehamps. Robinson's novels include Gilead and Home. Her collection of essays is called Absence of Mind. For To the Best of Our Knowledge, I'm Jim Fleming. This hour, Does the Soul Still Matter? is part of our special series, Science and the Search for Meaning, Five Questions, brought to you by Wisconsin Public Radio. Original music for the series was written by Steve Mullen at Walk West Productions. For more information on this series and to find additional material about the topics we've explored, please go to our website at ttbook.org slash scienceandmeaning. And special thanks to two of our sponsors for Science and the Search for Meaning, the John Templeton Foundation, supporting science, investing in the big questions, and Promega Corporation, providing tools and technologies for research in life science. PRI Public Radio International.